Before we get to the show, I want to let you know about a live event we're doing in New York. This is Taste is coming at you live again on August 17th with two very special guests, authors Natasha Pikowitz and Claire Saffitz, in conversation with me, Eliza Barbanel. We'll be at Rizzoli Bookstore talking about summer baking, making their latest dessert-centric cookbooks, and more. And it's free to attend. So see you there. First come, first serve. There's this great recipe called Forgotten Cookies. It's a meringue, like a kiss, um, but it's in, it, there's chocolate chips in there and some nuts in there, and they're called a forgotten cookie because you, you put them in an oven at 350, and you immediately turn off the oven, and you leave them in there overnight. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Have you ever eaten prune whip pie? How about pickle cheesecake? Well, B. Dylan Hollis absolutely has. The popular TikTok and YouTube creator has racked up millions and millions of views, baking his way through vintage cookbooks with an eye for his three W's, wacky, weird, and wonderful. Now he has a book of his very own, Baking Yesteryear, and we're thrilled to have him on the podcast to talk about the appeal behind historic baking and much more. All right. This is Taste, B. Dylan Hollis. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Eliza. So we were talking a little bit about this off mic, but how is, how is New York treating you so far? It's treating me well, although it's a lot to take in. Um, I, you know, I was born and raised on the island of Bermuda, very small, a mile wide and 21 miles long. And then I frequent a small town called Laramie in the state of Wyoming. And needless to say, those two places are very different to here. Yeah, I cannot even begin to imagine that. I'm curious, like, do you come across New York-related recipes in your research at all? More so than you'd think. I think that's just because New York and this sort of East Coast area um, was populated for so long before the rest of the country. Um, a lot of the sort of landmark early cookbooks of the 1900s, the 1910s, did come from this area. I, th- I think of the Boston School of Cookery with Fanny Merritt Farmer and the Priscilla cookbook. These cookbooks all came from this area. Um, they get overshadowed by some big cookbooks in the West sort of uh, after the 50s. But yeah, there's a lot of New York recipes that are vintage that I'm into. Yeah, I would say, you know, New Yorkers um, love to talk about ourselves. And also there are so many great old school restaurants that are here. So I'm actually not surprised at all that you're encountering a lot of New York related recipes. Oh, yeah, it's fun. But also there's a lot of food here from other nations, other cultures. And I think it's fantastic. I don't get that in both of the places that I told you about. Yeah, I hope that you get to um, do some food adventures before you leave. I hope so. Though, if I'm here for too long, I think you might have to roll me out of this state. I just eat everything. Yeah, I'm on that way right now. (laughs) (laughs) So to start, I just want to ask you a little bit about, like, you know, your interest in historical baking and, like, what do you think we can learn about history through baking and, and eating these old recipes? Learning about history through recipes is a funny thing because you can't really learn much from a singular recipe. You sort of need three things. You need the recipe itself. You need a location where the recipe is from and then the date. 
And even with those three things, you can, you can infer some things, but it's only in comparison with other recipes. Uh, you know, with one recipe, it'll tell you maybe what someone's interested in or, you know, whether it's a dessert or a, or a main dish. But when you start to compare those with nearby recipes um, of the same time or compare it to a similarly named recipe that's maybe like five years after and you can see the changes in ingredients, um, you know, say post-depression and pre-depression, you can see how, uh, how changes and desires change in relation to what's available. Um, although I must admit, a lot of my fascination and my interest in old recipes isn't purely historical. Um, I speak a lot about my three W's, the wild, wacky, and wonderful. Um, so a lot of my interest in these recipes is just how people from different times, different decades come up with wild, bizarre things. And it tells me that humans were all a little kooky and that, uh, that stretches into the realm of cookery as well. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I think there is such this fascination online with, um, you know, 70s dinner party food or <laughs> jello or things like that. And as a person looking at that today, I always am wondering like, oh, was this person crazy in the 50s or the 70s? Or was this like totally normal? Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like how do you do you have a sense of, oh, was this wacky for the time or this was just normal back then? And it seems strange to us because our lives are so different. Yeah, I think a lot of that, uh, I wouldn't say negative reception to the old recipes, but a lot of this, oh, that's a crazy recipe, does come from its contrast, its contrasting nature to modern times. You know, in the 70s, that was that was everything, you know, jello molds. It was more so to impress those at your table. It was the thing to do. It was du jour. Um, and I, it runs parallel to fashion. I, that's how I like to think of it. You know, uh, it might have been crazy for the times, um, but only in only in comparison to, to modern times. But still, I do wonder. I wonder what sort of substances some people were on in the 70s when they came up with some of these things. Um, yeah, <laughs> I do think there's a reason why we don't make them anymore. So I'm curious, like going back to the beginning of this project, were you flirting with doing like cooking and other kinds of recipes? Like how did baking kind of become the area of focus? Because there are so many kinds of old cookbooks and old recipes that are out there. Yeah, and I mean, before I even delved into the realm of baking old things. I always knew that I could bake, but I couldn't cook. You know, normally you hear people say that it's the opposite, that they can cook, but they can't bake. For whatever reason, you know, the, the creative side of cooking and just adding things willy-nilly, as I'd like to say, or getting those flavors, I, I can't cook. Um, so I could always bake. But going back to your question of, you know, how did I come to I, uh, maybe restrict's not the, be the best word, but restrict myself to baking recipes. Of or the focus in on baking, yeah. And it's just because that was the nature of cookbooks in the past. You know, 1900s, 1910s, 20s, even into the 60s, recipes that were written down were recipes that people didn't know how to make. You know, the mm. point of putting them in a book would be to replicate them. And people knew housewives... You know, people who were working in the homes for maybe wealthy families or, you know, homekeepers, they knew how to cook. It was instilled in them, it instilled into them from a young age. They knew how to do their daily dinners, to prepare lunch, their breakfast, how to feed their family. But it was the more complicated side, the desserts, that people didn't know um, how to make. So cookbooks from the past in general will have a higher proportion of desserts of baked goods 
than like savory recipes and cooking recipes, you know, because they just they didn't need to be in there. So you'll you'll come to find that yeah, it was simply a a product of the fact that cookbooks from the past have more baked goods than they do cooking recipes. You're blowing my mind right now because, of course, that makes so much sense, and I've never thought about it that way. But um, I guess like that would help. And I'm, and in the beginning, how are you finding these recipes? In the beginning, well. I've always been a lover of yesteryear, and you'll come to find I, I love that word, not only because it's on a book of mine, but um, I've always loved the past. I've been obsessed with it. You know, I have a music degree in jazz piano from the 1940s, 1950s. Enough said, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the first, the first thing I did when I came to the United States in 2014 was I bought a 1963 Cadillac because, you know, what's more American than an oversized gas-guzzling car? What color? Uh, it's beige, actually. Oh, I thought you were going to say red. No, no. Cadillac was uh, really kind of uh, old school. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, they, lots of beige, lots of tans. And it has a pink. It has a rose interior. Wow. Okay, I'm coming to Wyoming. I'm getting a ride. <laughs> yes, anytime. But, I mean, uh, point being, I've always liked to collect trinkets of the past. And among those things, even before my baking escapades, were old books. And invariably, I would find these old books in estate sales or antique sales, um, antique stores rather. And um, I had in my collection of old books, lots of old cookbooks. So around 2020, um, you know, when I started TikTok, everyone was gravitating toward that app. Um, and also people were bored out of their minds. So they were trying new things. You know, people took up crocheting. People learned how to do all manner of things um, in their spare time. Yeah, I did a sourdough baking phase for a while. Oh, fantastic. At mm -hmm. least you had some yummy results from that. It was great. Yeah, it was great. And then it was over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I put sort of two and two together. I put my wanting to try something new as, you know, I, I said, okay, we're going to try baking. Um, and I had this old cookbook. And I was on TikTok at the time uploading things that, you know, had nothing to do with baking. And I just found this ridiculous recipe in an old cookbook for a pork cake. It's a fruit cake, and it's just as horrible as it sounds. It's a typical dark fruit cake with a pound of ground pork. And um, it was from an old cookbook that I found at an estate sale. And I put two and two together, and I filmed it. And, yeah, I guess you could say the rest was history. <laughs> and why would somebody make a pork cake? Do we know? Well, pork is a very fatty meat. And in the past, you would find cakes, um, their fat would be, you know, lard, uh, suet, even tallow. You go ba way back to like how mincemeat used to be made with mm -hmm. actual meat. Um, it, was, it was a way to add fat into a baked good when maybe you didn't have butter, maybe you didn't have your lard available. It was purely to add texture and act as the fat in, in your fruitcake. Um, it was not so much that the pork added flavor, um, which unfortunately it does a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was, used, it, it was used as that. It wasn't, it wasn't common in the Depression um, uh, in like fruitcake form because that was, you know, lots of sugar, lots of fruit. It would be something you would make at Christmas. But yeah... Um, a frightful creation. I said that it tasted like a question mark, a good question mark. Yeah, I love that line. I think that says so much without encouraging anyone to make it for themselves, which is probably <laughs> the right tone to strike. <laughs> and it's been like a huge success since then. Are people sending you weird recipes all the time now? Eliza, let me tell you, my post office hates me. Oh, no, especially because it's a small town post office. They just know it's coming to you. <laughs> 
Uh, cookbooks on cookbooks. And let me tell you, I, I say that as if it's something to, you know, not be happy about. It's an honor to receive these things. And even more so because, you know, people throw away, throw away these old cookbooks. So if I'm the one to save them, you know, that's a burden I'll lovingly carry. What's your system for organizing all the cookbooks? Is it alphabetical, decade? Currently, there is no system besides separating those uh, nasty, like, spiral comb-binding cookbooks to the non-comb-binding cookbooks. And I do actually organize them by state of disrepair. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Are you are you fixing them up, or you just don't want them to fall apart completely if they're super old? If they're super old, I don't want them to fall apart completely. Uh, I've yet to attempt, like, new bindings and things like that, so I just, like, gingerly set them aside. Yeah. Have you ever been on a road trip and you see on the map, it's like, oh, the world's largest cashew or those, like, niche attractions? I feel like you could start an old cookbook library in the future and people would just pull over and go see it. <laughs> just what? Just the long I-80? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I could see that. That'd be fun. I'd have a, I'd have a grand old time. I'm manifesting this for you right now. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to talk about community cookbooks because I think they're just such a cool part of history and I'm curious like what you find to be special about them. Community cookbooks. Well, the love of my life, you know. If a person could be a community cookbook, I would marry that person. Um, I love community cookbooks because cookbooks in general, sort of professional cookbooks, their very nature is aspirational. Um, you know, I, we mentioned, we talked earlier about how, you know, it would be recipes that people didn't know how to make. Um, so you find in professional cookbooks, there's a lot of really high-class, difficult, not very approachable recipes. And it's it's not a good representation of what the populace was eating at the time. You know, you grab a cookbook off a store shelf and I might ask you, you know, how often do you actually make something from that book on the weekly? You know, you may say, you know, maybe twice a week. And I think that would that might be up there that might be quite high um and that's that's cookbooks on the professional side um produced by chefs and restaurants and things like this community cookbooks what i love the most about them is that they're compiled by everyday individuals um everyday home cooks like you and i home bakers like you and i and they can give a rather accurate representation of what a given area is eating consuming what is popular at the time you know these aren't chefs these are, you know, Mrs. Mayflower on Third Street um, and her, you know, her knitting party or part of the church. Um, and they're, for one, I like them because they're approachable recipes. For two, they're not afraid to be wacky and bizarre. You have some real awful creations in community cookbooks. You know, the Velveeta fudge <laughs> is an example of creation from a community cookbook. This is the product of someone who's just throwing things together in their home kitchen and what other chance would there be for that recipe to be published other than a community cookbook? I can't get over that as a concept. It also would be a great band name, honestly. Well, being fudge, it's going to be our, like, punk rock duo. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start practicing soon. <laughs> well, I think that all makes sense. And, you know, it's interesting because I was back in L.A., which is where I grew up, a couple months ago, I was at my grandparents' house. I was going through their cookbooks with them, and I found a community cookbook that their synagogue had made in the 70s that my grandma had contributed recipes to, and mm. my uncle had done little drawings as a child in that. And to me, as, like, a family, that's such a beautiful thing to have and see, like, what would you submit to this community cookbook? But also it's such a nice representation of there's everyday meals, there's 
things that are, you know, what you would make for Hanukkah or Rosh Hashanah or a holiday. Like it really is showing the way that food plays a part into so many aspects of people's lives, you know, not just like a day-to-day meal. Yes, precisely. I mean, there's so much, um, there's so much in the creations of home bakers. Like you say, it can tell you about family dynamics. It can tell you how specific communities, specific areas celebrate different, you know, holidays. And that's how you might be able to tell that, you know, the average home baker in Boston really likes to make a brown bread, like an anadama bread, you know, breads with molasses in them where, you know, out in Nebraska, maybe they just like their Parker House rolls. Mm, Definitely. So we're here to talk about your new book, which is called Baking Yesteryear, our favorite word of the day. Um, And I'm curious about like how you came up with the approach for this book. How did you decide to include certain recipes and how did you package them all together? Well, we spoke earlier, at least I did, about my three W's. Yes. Wild, wacky, and wonderful. And that is how I pick my recipes, not only for my TikToks, but for the cookbook. You know, I would go through, I I say I read a cookbook a night. I try my hardest. You know, everyone reads novels. I read a cookbook. It's the only way I can, you know, deal with those that come through the post office. (laughs) And I have a system. I have a spreadsheet and, you know, I'll flip through them. And if I see something that either has an interesting title that is uh, applicable to one of those three W's or has very interesting ingredients or maybe the method is just out the window, I'll mark it. I'll mark the page number and the name. And um, yeah, over time, you know, since 2020, my spreadsheet is very large. And when it came time to, to make a book, you know, you go through those things, you, you pick a recipe, you pick it apart. And yet that's how the, the recipes came to find their way in the book. Um, now, getting the recipe to work and actually writing the recipe, um, that's a process to speak about. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Like how much of these recipes are... Are any of them the original recipe? I assume they all must have been adapted to work for like a modern kitchen. Yes, none of them have been pulled directly. None of them are the original recipes um, in their, you know, in their own right. Um, What I did for all of the recipes in the book is say we would take a recipe for hot crust buns, right? You'd find hot crust buns in the 1900 section. I might find a hot crust bun recipe from 1909 from Bermuda. Um, I'd find another recipe for hot cross buns from Birmingham in, say, 1907, and another random one from 1903 in, say, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I would bake them all, attempt or try my best to replicate the recipe, and find what I liked from certain ones, find what I didn't like in other ones, and sort of create the best version of those three. You know, maybe I don't like golden raisins. I like regular raisins. Maybe this person used far too much yeast. And, you know, you take that back. And not to mention the whole idea of having to write the recipe from the ground up because, you know, in the 1900s, they didn't tell you how much of anything. They didn't tell you what temperature, what to bake them in, how to mix it. It's an ordeal. It's all vibes and that's all. (laughs) What was the most difficult recipe to get right that's in the book? Oh, my goodness. So there was this recipe called Food for the Gods which is different than ambrosia. It is. It is. Okay. And it was uh, it was this very strange mashup of egg whites, sugar, dates, nuts, and graham cracker crumbs. And it, it didn't give any mixing instructions and didn't say what to bake it in. In my research, Food for the Gods um, it came in all shapes and sizes. It could be anything from like a cracker cookie to a pudding. 
uh, to a torrid. Um, I must have baked that upwards of, you know, two dozen times. I went through so many graham cracker crumbs. I can tell you Nabisco is very happy with me. <laughs> um, but that, that was a very difficult, just from the sort of experimentation side, um, that was the one I perhaps, you know, built up the most. Um, then there was a recipe. Are you familiar with divinity? Um, I mean, not in the edible form. <laughs> <laughs> Divinity is this very like um, popular candy, uh, old school candy of the South, um, and it's this it's it's egg white based. It's sort of egg whites, um, sugar, and sort of candied fruits and nuts, and it's it's this weird cross between nougat, uh, marshmallow, and meringue. Mm. It's got this soft chew. But it's, it's candy making, right? So you have to boil your sugar syrup and you have to pour that into the egg white mixture as, as you're whipping it up. And as I'm sure you know, with sort of candy making, temperature variability, things with drying, getting the, the amounts perfect, the temperature's perfect, it's impossibly difficult. So that took my divinity recipe in the book took a great amount of time. Going back to the food of the gods, you're talking about how it manifested in all these different ways. What does the final recipe in your book look like? It takes the form of a tort. So not the tort in a traditional sense of like a multi-layered cake, but a tort in the sense that it is a cake bound not by flour, but by, you know, uh, nuts or cracker crumbs. In my Food for the Gods recipe, it's graham cracker crumbs, uh, very similar to like a soda cracker pie, um, which were early pies in sort of uh, early America, sort of um, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, so it's got this, it's got this, crispy outer layer, but it's egg white based, right? And by comparison to egg whites to graham cracker crumbs, um, it's got very little dry ingredients. So it's got this nice chew with the crispiness crispness on the outside, kind of like a macaron. Um, and then it's got dates and nuts. If I talk about this enough, I'm going to want one, Eliza. Yeah, I already want one. <laughs> and when you say about all these different manifestations, it makes me think about what we're talking about, about how early recipes often didn't have a method in them. So is it possible that people would just see this ingredient list and just take it in different directions based on what they wanted or just that there are different versions, different desserts that have the same name at the same time? That's a really good question, and it's it's one that's really hard to answer. Yeah, I don't know how you could maybe, but... <laughs> yeah, no, well, you've got some people who say that, you know, people of the time, maybe even specifically of the area, would know what to do with those ingredients. And that's one way, but I'm not, I'm not happy with that because really... If I were a recipe writer, even back in the day, I wouldn't feel comfortable with doing those things, um, you know, just putting this down in a book and expecting people to know what to do. Maybe they just didn't have foresight. I don't know. Um, and then there's other people who, who, who say that, um, yeah, you would make what you want out of this. Um, for example, nothing as complicated as the food for the gods, but you would make something like a, a batter for a, a muffin and you wouldn't disclose it as a muffin. You would call it like a brown batter. And if you wanted to make like a breakfast loaf bread, quick bread, you'd make so. If you wanted to do little muffins, you could do so. Or maybe even little tea cakes, drop them like a drop cookie. Um, there are some people who say that. I'm, I'm not certain what the answer would be. I just think... Maybe the people of the past like to play jokes on us and, you know, that's that's they're they're playing jokes on us people in the future. I think they really are because sometimes I get frustrated. I look at like a New York Times cooking section, comment section or on Instagram and people will comment asking like, oh, can I swap? Can I add nuts to this? Or like, can I swap golden raisins for dried apricots? And 
Uh, I mean, maybe because I work in food, I just feel like the answer is obvious that like, yes, you can or try it yourself and find out what happens. But I think that there's almost this degree of handholding that we can get into with recipes today where like people shouldn't be afraid to be swapping in different things, especially if it's like uh, another dry ingredient or something that is just kind of a one to one, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. I got a TikTok comment, I think three days ago that asked me, you know, would this recipe work if I switched a cup of milk chocolate chips to dark chocolate chips? Mm-mm. And I, I mean, it's it, it's not their fault. I think you're right. It's just that's that's the layman's understanding of baking. And that's really what I, with however I could do it or have the opportunity to do it, that's what I would like to dispel. Like you said, it's a, it's experimentation. Right. And if you want to turn muffins into a loaf cake, just bake it for longer. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask about dates because you have a whole section in the book that's dates not in the like era and time sense, but just that they include dates as an ingredient. What's the idea behind that? Well, that's because dates, dates must have been an object of unmatched affection. They were that girl. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they were. Everyone wanted them. Everyone had them. Um, Like I say, it's not hyperbole. I think I mentioned this in the book to say that, say, in the 1940s and 1950s community cookbook or even a professional cookbook, it would not be unusual for seven out of ten recipes to contain dates in them. You'd have date macaroons, date bread, date date nut loaves, everything. And, you know, I chose it not only because it's paying homage to the fact that dates were everywhere in the past, but that dates are one of those fruits that really built up, you know, not even just the state of California and the desert states, but a lot of the nation. Um, dates were brought to the United States and planted in California, you know, the... Um, the Coachella Valley, mm-hmm. and they ex- they exploded. We're talking about, you know, tens of millions of pounds every year. And the great thing about dates is that, you know, they're somewhat dried. They're high in sugar, and they basically never go off. You know, maybe they get a little hard, a little chewy, um, and they have a fantastic flavor. So all of these combinations mean that you could keep dates in your pantry for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> maybe 20 years is going a bit too far, um, but for a long time. And they were economical. Um, they added sweetness. Maybe you didn't need so much sugar. Um, so there's all of these factors that just – or maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it was just a fever. And people were just certainly obsessed with dates. And that's fine by me as well. I think it's all of the above. And I would imagine that you have a lot of dates in your fridge or pantry at home. Are there any other ingredients that you keep on hand that maybe you didn't in the past just because they play such a big role in baking yesteryear? Yeah, molasses. I never used to do much with molasses. Uh, Like I don't cook much. I don't barbecue much. So I wouldn't use molasses in like a barbecue sauce. Um, You know, I, I would not use molasses as much as I do now. So I, I keep molasses in my kitchen. Um, I keep all sorts of strange things in my kitchen. Um, ammonia. Ammonium carbonate. For what? <laughs> <laughs> well, ammonium carbonate is, uh, they're smelling salts. That's actually the compound. But um, they were a progenitor leavening agent, mm. you know, between yeast and the invention of baking sodas and baking powders. They would use ammonia. So I, I have baker's ammonia. It smells terrible. But once baked, um, it completely deactivates. Um, dates is probably the biggest one. I buy dates and, you know, buy 10 pounds each. So <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all sorts of grand things have found their way into my kitchen. But I don't, I don't keep that strange of ingredients because I don't go back 
too far. You know, I sort of had the cutoff at 1900. There's a few contemporary of com- contemporaries of mine, I think, of like Max Miller of Tasting History. Um, I can only imagine what his pantry looks like because he goes back, you know, talking like a before zero, sort of these, you know, triple digit years. He's got like woolly mammoth in the freezer or something. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't really happening in 1914. So. No, definitely not. So the date section stuck out to me and then the worst of the worst section, of course, stuck out to me. Did you ever hesitate about including just really gnarly recipes or you kind of know that's what the people want? Mm, I struggled with it, Eliza. I struggled with it because on one hand, the terrible recipes play such a big part in my overall video production. You know, I, I truthfully try these recipes for the first time on camera and I taste them for the first time on camera with the exception of the Jello poke cake when I announced my cookbook because, of course, I had tried that before. Um, so, so yeah, on one hand, um, you have all of these terrible recipes that, that people get shown a lot. And on the other hand, you have fingers on the other, on the, (laughs) on the other hand, you have the fact that people are going to, you know, there's always that one person that is going to disregard the fact that this has the worst of the worst section. And they're going to be upset that maybe they, they tried this recipe and they're like, it's terrible. I said, well, I tell you it's terrible. Um, but no, I. I I came to the conclusion that I wanted to prove to people that there are terrible recipes that exist in print, in publication, and these were literally the ideas of of some sick or twisted individual. (laughs) So I I just wanted to prove that, yeah, that this is a thing that someone made and printed this out. So I like to think of it almost as like a practical joke that's being played from the past that you are kind of helping continue into the future. Even though you're saying that they're the worst of the worst, I bet there will be people that look at the title of something and say, oh, maybe that wouldn't be that bad. Or it's, you know, they don't like someone very much. They're coming over for dinner. They would want to make it in that context. But I think that's kind of fun, you know, even though I'm never going to make any of them or hopefully ever eat any of them. Yeah, exactly. And I I realize that not everyone is insane as I. Not everyone has, you know, three bookshelves full of old community cookbooks. So if I could, like you say, continue this practical joke in a digestible manner for those who haven't come across all of these dusty tomes, uh, so be it. So on the positive side of recipes we do like, what's like a recipe from the past that you think is overdue for a comeback in the same way that Baked Alaska is having a popular moment or something like that? I think macaroons, not in the singular sense of like a coconut macaroon or the French macaroon, the macaron, but I am obsessed with, as you might have been able to tell from like Food for the Gods or Divinity, I'm obsessed with baked goods that primarily consist of egg whites that are meringue-based. Like back in the day, you know, chocolate chip cookies or or flour-based cookies, they weren't really that popular, really. Even pre-1950s, the chocolate chip cookie, though being invented in the 30s, um, around that time at least, uh, they didn't exist. There were hundreds of recipes of, well, even more than that, for macaroons. There would be like, you know, it would be a cookie, but maybe just with some soda crackers, egg whites, sugar, and then you would have your add-ins, much like you would have a base cookie recipe, and then you would turn that into a chocolate chip cookie recipe. So, you know, I think of like Ricciarelli, which is like an almond flour macaroon. You've got egg whites, almond flour, and sort of uh, citrus flavors. Or, you know, just a plain chocolate chip cookie 
but without flour. There's this great recipe called forgotten cookies. It's a meringue, like a kiss, a meringue kiss that mm-hmm. you would make. Um, but it's in. It, there's chocolate chips in there and some nuts in there, and they're called a forgotten cookie because you you put them in an oven at 350, and you immediately turn off the oven, and you leave them in there overnight with a door door jar. Wow, and why? <laughs> Just because, you know, how meringues need to cool down gently and uh-huh. not crack. And th- that's just one of those little things that, you know, someone from the past, the bygone years said, that's a good idea. That's the perfect time. Let them, you know, let them come to temperature, not crack. And you get this lovely, crispy chocolate chip cookie, but in a macaroon form. And yeah, so that's a long, long story short. I think macaroon cookies in general need to make a return. I like that idea. And I really like the name Forgotten Cookie because it's doubly true today because it's a cookie that has been largely forgotten in our own appetites and history. But, um, you know, maybe they're still in an oven somewhere and we can just (laughs) pluck them out. It's a very romantic recipe name. Yes. Okay. So I want to ask you about a hot take, which is I've heard that you don't like baking with gram measurements and that you like to use cups and teaspoons, which is in opposition to the way that most bakers feel. So Mm -hmm. I just want to Fact check that and find out why. I I can see my reputation precedes me. Well, Shalia, our producer, tipped me off to this and I was pretty shocked. So I had to ask. (laughs) Yes, I I don't like using a scale. I don't like I don't like baking by weight. Um, Even after the process of of writing a cookbook, um, the process that I despised the most because I needed to make sure it was correct was the metrification Mm -hmm. of, of of ingredients. You know. I just think that truly it's not that deep. I just think that using, you know, shoving a cup into a bowl or a container of flour, leveling it off, leveling it off and throwing it, you know, into your your mixing bowl. I think that's easier. I think it's more accessible. Um, Of course, this is just opinion and you're correct. I, I once did an experiment where I asked three people to, you know, measure a cup of flour. And I would weigh it. And there were, you know, you know, one was 120. There was another which was 162 grams. What is that person using? <laughs> yeah. And then mine was was 114. Which is what you use in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I made that executive executive decision. So I do concede if you're looking for accurate measurements, if you're looking for precision, you need to bake by weight. You know, if you're baking at any volume, if you're in a bakery, if you're baking by the, yeah, of course, weight's the way to go. But, you know, I like to bake by displacement, by cups and tablespoons and these things. I think because compared to a lot of my peers, I am an amateur. I like embracing the amateur nature of baking insofar as I like to keep it as accessible as possible, and I don't want to scare anyone. Weights, scales are invariably, there's, maybe for whatever reason, I don't know, I think they're scary. Um, this is a personal phobia. Yeah, I, I'm now looking inward now. I'm not looking, I'm not liking what I'm seeing. <laughs> I wish I had a scale behind the desk. This would be a great time to bring it out. <laughs> but I get what you mean, and I think also if... I can speculate a little bit about you as a person from just what I've heard over this conversation. I feel like um, it's a nostalgic and like romantic and fanciful gesture to be scooping in and leveling out. And it's the way that home bakers were baking for a long time. And if you're trying to be channeling that spirit, it makes sense to me. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, you, you said that better than I could. You know, I will ramble ad nauseum. But yeah, and it's 
like you said, it's just what people did. And I, I like to further that. And you don't mind doing the extra dishes? <laughs> no, I don't. That helps too. So to close out, you know, this is taste. We like to ask guests about their taste. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Oh so just no thoughts, maybe a little thought, but just tell me what you think. Okay. 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 Um, favorite cookbook. Favorite cookbook, Joy of Cooking. Favorite candy bar. Oh, I'm a weird one. 100 grand. Favorite decade for food. Ooh, uh, 1925 to 1935. I know that's cheating, but... Ooh, no, I love that it's not a proper decade. (laughs) Favorite recipe that you've made a video for? Oh, the pinto bean cake. Okay, I have to ask why. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just because it's absurd? Yeah. It it was a cake made primarily of pinto beans. There was no sugar. There was honey. There were peanuts. You had to put it through something called a grinder mat, which I didn't know at the time, but it's basically just like a meat grinder, but I used a food processor. And yeah, it, it made a cake. It made a cake and it tasted good. And I was mad about it. I love that it tasted good. Okay, most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? I have to say the wooden spoon. Mm. Most overrated ingredient? Oh, it's not to do with baking. Can I say truffles? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. We do not like truffles here. <laughs> Although I love truffle hunting. Okay, food for the gods or ambrosia? Oh, just because of the time spent, I have to say food for the gods. And wacky cake or water pie? Oh, my goodness. Water pie, I have a disdain for like nothing else. Wacky cake. Wacky cake it is. Dylan, thanks so much. This was so much fun. Eliza, thank you for having me. Hey, Eliza, what's up? Hey, Matt. Not much. Just, you know, adjusting back to life in New York. Oh, my gosh. Life in New York. So it's so tough and rough compared to where you just were. I just wanted to have this conversation about your recent trip to Paris and Lisbon, two places I've loved, but I haven't been in since before the pandemic. What is up? I mean, great things are up. It was really fun to get to go, to get to be one of the New Yorkers that goes to Europe in the summer instead of one of the New Yorkers that watches people on Instagram going to Europe in the summer. <laughs> it's such a real thing. I've been biding my time. It was it was my turn. It was my first time in, in Europe in almost a decade, probably, a long time. And I ate so well, uh, not to brag, but <laughs> had a lot of highlights that um, would be fun to share. So you were uh, in Paris and, and you had a looked like a pretty cracking event for Cake Zine in Paris. How did that go? Yeah, the event was so great. Uh, Taste This is Taste producer Pat Stango came by the event, yep, which is a delight. Shout out to Pat. Um, we did a pop-up at Combat, which is a really cool female-owned cocktail bar in the like Belleville, Beaucharmont neighborhood in Paris. They did a cocktail for us and then we had a lot of magazines and then we hired two bakers in Paris that I've admired from afar for a while to make dessert for it, which is always just a special thing to do to get to um, hire people to make like pie themed dessert, you know, a delight. It's such a delight. Can we first get, can we get like a fit check? Like what are people looking like when they're rolling into the Kigzine pop-up um, in Belleville? What's, well, what's the scene? It's funny because I was just talking to someone about how I feel very heartened that like any event we've done, which we've done one in LA, we've done a bunch in New York and then this one in Paris, we somehow find the cake people, which hmm. I mean, someone that has a neck tattoo of a slice of cake. <laughs> real person at real. the party. Someone with a really cool purse that has like fake frosting on it. Like there's a little bit of like cake fashion culture, but then just like cool people that want to have a magazine, have some pie. And we did these two really, well, more than two. We had two bakers do pie. We had Alina 
Pronopenko, who is Ukrainian, who did a Ukrainian like lemon poppy seed cottage cheese pie, very traditional. And she does a very like black aesthetic with her pastries. So Mm. that was fun. And then Andrea Sham did three pies that were Neapolitan ice cream flavored. And they had frosting on the top that looked like a lattice. So I saw that. I saw the photo you shared with me. So a black aesthetic for pie and cake and, and dessert in general. So curious. How do you make pastry black? Well, I think it depends. I went to a pop-up she did at Marty that weekend also, which is a cute coffee shop in that same neighborhood. And she does these oysters. They look like an actual oyster, but with this giant kind of craggy black shell. And it's actually like a salty chocolate cookie shell. And then she does panna cotta inside of it that looks like the kind of meat of the oyster. And it comes with a lemon that you squeeze over the whole thing. So it's very much like an actual dessert oyster experience. It's served with with, with, a, with lemon juice. That's with the whole lemon wedge, and then you like, squeeze it over just like you would do with an oh, oyster. Wow. So fun. I feel like um, that's not something I've seen other people doing. I love that. And then, so, of course, you you, you visited uh, the restaurants of Paris. You you um, Did you have DZ Day? Did you have the croissant? Um, I didn't, but I had a really amazing um, – I went to Tapisserie, which is a patisserie that the people that do Septime, which is a very famous tasting menu spot, do. And they have two things that are kind of the standouts that I really liked. They do – a flan slice, but it's on really, really flaky puff pastry. It's this like huge, thick slice of flan, vanilla bean all over it. That was really great. And then they do shoe buns that are called chou à la fleuve, and it's flavored with like a kind of hay scented cream. Mm. So they infuse the hay into the cream, which I was looking up this place on David Leibowitz's blog, and he was saying that like fleuve is one of like the trendy patisserie flavors of the moment in Paris right oh, now. Oh, is um, the hay flavor. Hay yeah. flavor, which I'd never had before. And it's kind of grassy and honey-like, and I really like a vegetal dessert moment. Completely. So I liked that a lot. Yeah. Hay is the new pea. Hay is the new pea. And also a trend that I noticed that was really interesting is that two of my favorite meals, kind of the nicer meals that I did, are both uh, French Asian chefs that are doing kind of interesting food in that kind of intermingling stratosphere. So I went to Mokoloko. They have a Korean chef there right now. Um, his name is Esuli, and he's doing like hamachi with lardo and like a Granny Smith granita. Unbelievably composed and beautiful food. I was on your Instagram yeah. checking it out. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like cooling. The flavor contrast, the texture contrast. That was really great. They do like beef tataki with house made chili oil. And then also I went to Les Servants, which is uh, these sisters that are French Filipino. Probably the best thing I had there was this brioche toast with really beautiful sardines just kind of laid out on top. It was 90 degrees. Yeah. There's obviously no air conditioning. So I couldn't really eat in the way that I wanted to. <laughs> but I did have pho, even though it was so hot out. And it was Cooled amazing, amazing pho at um, Songhang, which is like a longtime Vietnamese spot in Paris. So moving on to Portugal, you spent some time there as well. And um, any listener of this show knows, and Anna and I talked about it a lot. Uh, there's one moment when Tatiana, Anna, and I all went to Portugal in the same summer. It's been an absolute destination for many Americans in the past pre-pandemic. But you got to go there for the first time. Tell me about your experience in Portugal. Well, I went to eat shellfish and sit on the beach. And I did both of those <laughs> things. So I was very happy. I think probably the craziest meal I did is I went to this place that's called a Cerveharia Ramiro. Did you go there? I didn't get to go there. It was on a list originally, but I never made it there. Yeah. You know, it's been open since the 50s. It's yeah. a Bourdain spot. It's giant, like three levels. Yep. You have to get a ticket if you come there when it's busy and then they call your ticket. It almost reminds me of Contramar and that it's an old school seafood focused 
spot that's very beloved. And we just, they kind of balled out, feasted. We got the largest shrimp I've ever had in my entire life. And reddest, too. Reddest, largest, the only kind of shrimp that carries the roe in the head. uh, And they kind of slice it for you tableside and then mix up the roe and then spoon it over the shrimp, which is just like dinner theater. So fun. I had gooseneck barnacles, which are like a big delicacy in Portugal and Spain. I love those. And you can get those on the beach and you can get those, um, you know, at the bar. You can get them like anywhere. It's crazy. Yeah, they're called percebes. And you have to like... uh, slice them and then pull them apart yep. it's kind of like a eating experience and that was the probably the thing that like other people in the restaurant we had three different people come up to us hmm. say oh someone at my table wanted to try them they were too nervous can i have one so we were just giving away barnacles to all these people why would you be nervous is it just because the shape is a little off-putting the, the the texture might be a little bit strange i think you know i think there's only two kinds of barnacles that you can eat so they're not something that's commonly eaten and they weren't expensive but I could see that if you were the only person at a table that wanted to try them they come in a whole batch like you don't necessarily want to be stuck with that many barnacles Uh, but I really liked them I found it was kind of like eating a clam Mm -hmm. um, like a little chewy very oceany for very lots of umami great bar snack great with alcohol great to snack on yeah Yeah, that was really great and also something that i was not expecting is that all of the parks in lisbon have little kiosks that sell like coffee and alcohol and so you can just get like a porto tonico and sit in the park like anywhere and that's what everyone is doing in the neighborhood so that was like the other big highlight for me what a great trip now let me ask you lastly about portugal was there something about the food that surprised you um you know we again have written about portugal a lot but what surprised you (laughs) Um, I thought there would maybe be more vegetables than I ended up eating, which (laughs) I'm a Californian. So I feel like in general in Europe, also, I I, like I'm nervous to say this, but the fruit that I had in Paris was not good. And I thought it would be good. I like went to the farmer's market. It's hotter there. It's like saying lighter later. I was like, maybe we'll have better stone fruit. And it just was not what I wanted it to be, which is kind of a bummer. Um, But on the flip side, Everything else was super great. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> okay, like, you know, you it's like a farmer's market in, in New York. Like, you're going and you're kind of having a mixed bag. And if it's local, you know, the, the climate change. Yeah, I've been in the news. Yeah, <laughs> it I've, might heard, be I've heard about it. Some of the way that some of the produce is coming to market and, yeah. Look, tough. maybe I didn't go to the right stand at the farmer's market. Man. I will give myself some grace room on that. Um, Respect. But everything else... I loved. I had a lot of good bubble tea. I had really good Iranian food when I was in Portugal. I think that, like, it's just fun to be eating in a different city and notice, like, where the locals are going. And, you know, of course, I went to, like, a third-way coffee shop that everyone was speaking English inside. Like, there is definitely the vacationer influence to be found, I think, especially in Lisbon. I I noticed that. Yeah, it it was a great trip. I also flew back with what I thought was a lot of tinned fish, but in hindsight was not enough. So I think that's my top line note is that if you're going to Portugal and you're going to buy tin fish to give to people, remember that you also want some for yourself and get like twice as much. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing, Eliza. Appreciate it. Oh yeah. Anytime. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.